Assalamu alaikum. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to day five of Surah Baqarah, which is unbelievably just mind-blowing and exciting. Um, I know people have been writing me that they have really been um, appreciating and enjoying the um, the Baqarah series. I guess we call it the Baqarah series now, um, and are really excited for today. Um, first, I just want to, I know I mentioned this in the weekly email, but happy birthday to Sheikh. He doesn't like that. But um, I thought it was kind of an occasion to, um, one, we have to, you know, we have to express our love and appreciation and gratitude. Um, and, and birthdays are kind of a nice, I guess, secular way of <laughs> just saying, here's a good opportunity. Um, if you want to send a message, then please do. And so we received some really nice messages. And I thought I would share a few because, um, you know, it's, it's just, um, again, important to, to understand, like, how people appreciate this work, especially the Sheikh, and um, you know, it's, it's gratitude is such an important part, obviously, of our tradition. So, but let me start with a message from a non-Muslim. Um, Dear Sheikh, wishing you a happy birthday. I hope you have a great day with family and friends. Take some time to relax and rest. I am a non-Muslim so far, and I truly cannot tell you how much I appreciate and value your efforts and cherish your voice amidst what seems, um, sometimes feels like an ocean of ignorance. You have helped me to understand how truly beautiful Islam is and your amazing work simply does not get the recognition it deserves. Thank you and have a blessed day from a friend from afar. So that was very beautiful. That And I, and I think that's just so telling even when someone who's not Muslim can write and express their, their gratitude and appreciation. By the way, for his birthday, um, he got to spend all night and all day today preparing for the halakha in, in complete exhaustion. So just to let you all know, um, you know, it's the work doesn't stop even for birthdays here. Um, another birthday wish. Assalamu um, alaikum. I received the Usuli newsletter and found out about the Sheikh's birthday. Um, I um, am always amazed. Okay, let's see. He thinks he's late, but he's not. Um, I'd like to send my sincerest of wishes um, for the birthday all the way from Pakistan. I'm always amazed by, um, by your intellect and I'm very generally grateful for the work that you do at the Institute. I've always felt an invisible burden and shame on identifying as a Muslim. Mainstream narratives of violence and backwardness in regards to the community made me uneasy. I was unaware of the rich Islamic intellectual tradition. It was through the Sheikh's work that I became cognizant of the beauty and morality of our religion. I am blown away by the khutbahs each week. I try to listen to them whenever I am able to. I find them extremely helpful and substantial. I don't know how I came across the Sheikh's books and videos, but I'm glad that I did. I feel that I have become sensitive, tolerant, and more involved in social issues around me. I owe each and every one involved with these ventures my sincerest thanks. I have also become a more vor voracious reader due to the Sheikh. I mainly read nonfiction, history, political science, economics, and sociology. I did not want to make this email about me, but wanted to relay my feelings of how the Sheikh's continuous efforts have affected my own individual life experience. Usuli's work has probably touched many more people. Inshallah, this will have a snowball effect and the Sheikh's insights will continue to bring hope to people's lives. Happy birthday, Sheikh, a life and body of work worth celebrating. Allah bless you and your near and dear ones with health and happiness. Salam to everyone at Asuli. I appreciate your efforts as well. Very grateful to the content you put out. So alhamdulillah, all the way from Pakistan. And I think those messages are so beautiful and amazing. Last message. Um, also, this was a really beautiful message, and I, I often um, look at the timing of when uh, messages come, and I think I might have shared this before, but sometimes I know when Sheikh is really deep in preparation, and 
sometimes like feeling like, gosh, is anyone going to hear this message? Does it really matter what I'm doing? I'm putting everything into this and no one is really hearing it. And then God always manages to send a message right at the right time. And so this one came literally today as in the midst of his preparing. And I ran and I'm like, okay, I think God sent you a message today. So here it is. Um, so I'm just going to share a little bit of it, which um, it was a very beautiful personal message. But I, I also wanted to share this part. So um, she tells the story of how she was guided to Usuli. And she says, Alhamdulillah, I have been rightly guided towards Usuli. And Allah has blessed you with remarkable profundity. It also dawned on me the disheartening paradoxical situation you find yourself in, a Muslim instrument of justice with an elite mind and priceless knowledge that can quell its critics and oppressors, yet is shunned by the Muslim community that it defends, a community that is lacking articulate and educated jurists and needs a voice of reason to retort the ridicule and oppression it falls victim to. The community should be embracing and venerating you, but this Muslim community isn't ready to be taken back to the golden age of Islam. You are leaving a legacy for thirsty minds of the future, and your efforts aren't in vain. This also shows me that Allah is testing you the way he tested the prophets that he loves so dearly. My husband is a convert. I'm a born Muslim. We are both astounded by your achievements, as are those we introduced to Usuli. Not only your published works, but also learning in yesterday's khutbah that you've mastered Aramaic, Hebrew, and Arabic and your steadfast dedication and commitment to applying morality and ethics to interpretation of the Quran. The Muslim community is in dire need of you. Please don't despair of their ignorance and inability to appreciate your sagacity, skills, talent, generous spirit, and heart. You are healing and helping so many people just by persevering, and people are finding you. Your reward is with Allah, and may it be the most beautiful reward. Please keep going. The future Muslims and our future children need you and your teachings. So alhamdulillah, I think that that's such a beautiful articulation of how so many of us feel. And I'm also, I'm just struck with, you know, a lot of times when people write these messages, how articulate, how much they, they really demonstrate that people have thought about what the Sheikh is doing and saying and how it impacts our world. So I'm so grateful for that. And I want to share these messages because I know that even though we are a small community, people who follow with us and stuff like that, I just, you know, I think it means a lot when you hear how this work is touching other people too. And I think it, it helps to validate, you know, like us showing up here every day, learning what we're learning, even though it seems like the vast majority of people are not, not necessarily interested. And on that note, which is sort of um, interesting, I know Rami here was kind of sitting in my midst when I was like in my, my frustrated mode today reading social media. I mean, it's like, you know, when we're doing this, it's, it's like a, it's a bittersweet thing, right? On the one hand, you're so excited and you want so desperately, or I want so desperately for other people to find this message and know what we're doing. Um, and on the other hand, you know, when you jump on social media and Facebook and stuff and you see like what is posted and just where people are, you just sort of feel frustrated. And it's like, oh God, I wish people knew what we were doing. So this was a post from um, one of my Facebook friends and, um, you know, I know that he, he knows about, about some of the stuff we're doing here, but he says, um, he starts with a post, I would love an edition of the Bible, particularly the Hebrew scriptures, published specifically for a Muslim audience, with thorough annotations and footnotes and essays from leading Muslim biblical scholars like Shabir Akhtar and Ali Atai, given commentary on a scholarly literature on the history, composition, history and composition of the biblical texts and how this conforms with a Muslim understanding of revelation and sacred history. So I'm like, man, you know, we're covering Surah Baqarah, we're doing Bible study, we're, you know, we're turning the gaze, we're doing this stuff. So of course I, you know, had to like just sit and compose myself and, you know, and then I, I wrote a message and just to let some of the people know, but you know, this brings out like, 
you know, almost a hundred comments from people that are following and, and chiming in and sharing things that are out there about the Bible and maybe this you're interested in, you know, brother, maybe that you're interested in and oh, you should check out this one and isn't this the, who's the scholar that said that the, um, the, uh, what was it, the, um, the story of John is, is the Injil. I mean, it's just like, it's full of just things that are just so um, ignorant and it's like all they need to do is know about what we're doing and care enough to watch and so I posted and you know several people were interested and you know liked it and whatever but it struck me at that moment that you know it feels like so many of us Muslims are just searching you know we're, we're searching for something that validates the Quran and isn't it obvious that if we're Muslim we should start with understanding the Quran but what a statement of, of affairs. Like I, as a Muslim for you know 27 years, I was never given the impression that I should really care about what the Quran says or how it relates to my life. It was just very secondary to things. And <clears throat> you would like search every other source, every other you know human writing before you would actually come back and care about what the what the Quran says. And maybe it's because there really isn't anything that you know is that interesting or or relevant. And I feel like now we're finally doing it. So, I mean, it, it's, it's like, gosh, shouldn't we start with really understanding the Quran if we want to understand anything in life? It seems so obvious, but it's just so not obvious, right? So anyway, I, um, I'm so grateful for, for this experience. Um, I was even saying to Rami, you know, like looking at the table of contents of the English translations of the Quran, now, like, we can go through and say, oh, yes, we've done this surah and that surah, and I understand surah taha and surah, and you like, with every single theme of every chapter, you have a feeling of connection, like, you know it, like, it's starting to be familiar. And I was saying to Rami, I really want to get to the point where I can say, okay, I know surah taha was about this, and surah zukhra, you know, certain surahs I already know I can say this was the message for, for this particular surah. But with this work, we can work very easily towards 114 chapters and being able to say, oh, kasas, this is about that. Kalam, this is about that. Boom, 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 boom. And what an incredible gift. And the fact that we've done 67 surahs, I was thinking about this. If we focused on just one chapter per day, 67 surahs means that if every single day for more than two months, you learn a surah nonstop, two months straight, that's what we've done. That's an incredible accomplishment. Um, and I, I don't know, you know, people need to know that we're doing this. Um, it's, it's, and it's an incredible testament to what one scholar has dedicated his life to understanding so intimately. Like, I don't even know where you would find the time to really know 114 surahs at this level of, of depth and intensity. So for your birthday, alhamdulillah, thank you. It's been a gift to us. And, um, you know, I know people are praying that you have many more birthdays and you don't like that, <laughs> that dua. <laughs> but um, may Allah, you know, keep you with us as long as is merciful towards you. And may we, you know, learn um, everything that we can um, in your presence. And it was this incredible gift. Alhamdulillah, thank you for, for your birthday and um, thank you for everything that you've, you've given us um, with our, our religion and our, our faith. So I'm looking forward to another beautiful day, inshallah, with Surah Baqarah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Subhanallah al-Ali al-Azim, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa salatu wa salam ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa tawahu bi ihsanin ila yawm al-Din.
اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي امري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب. So inshallah we we started the um, process of going through Surah Al-Baqarah more systematically for uh, the nuanced lessons that it provides and um, we really just got to the very beginning of Surah Al-Baqarah, the, the first and, and the second and third ayah, which is the opening of Surah Al-Baqarah. Um, it, we already know this from the Meccan Quran, but get accustomed, get, um, get yourself used to noticing how often the Quran will address historical issue or a legal issue um, or a contextual issue, but repeatedly come back to core advice and the core advice is, is the, never changes. The heart of it is وَأَقِيمُ الصَّلَاةِ وَأَقِيمُ الصَّلَاةِ or the, the, the essence that these two components Worshipping God in, in, and it is not just, it's not, you know, you could easily say performing prayer, but it is more than performing prayer. The, the core idea is that you fill your life, whether you are dealing with um, any of life's challenges, with constantly going back to that core relationship with Allah, and that is worship. But worship is quintessentially a relationship, a direct relationship with Allah. And then the second component is your willingness to sacrifice material possessions. Both components feed each other. The closer you are to Allah, the weaker your relationship to material things and the greater your willingness to part with material things because they don't define you. And the stronger your inclination to forgo material attachments, the the more meaningful and the more sincere your ibadat, your worship of Allah, your relationship with Allah. And we, you know, I'm going to flag this, inshallah, as we go on, but 
remember that this is the way that Surah Al-Baqarah begins from the very outstart after as we said last halakha bringing your attention flagging that everything flows from this revelation um, immediately immediately those who persevere in worship in salah and spend of of what god has given them okay now i i i try so that you know that we don't go ayah by ayah but it's not going to be possible to skip as liberally as we've done with other surah because surah al-baqarah is extremely packed um uh, although a, a long surah but it is the range of topics that it visits and addresses are all, all within a theme that inshallah we'll explore together Okay, so we've already talked about that Surah Al-Baqarah immediately confronts us with the, the problem in any society. And to put it simply, the problem of self-deception and the problem of deceiving others, deceiving the self and deceiving others. And uh, there are plenty of people that the, the nature of human life, and as the Surah Al-Baqarah itself will, will tell us more about this later, but the nature of human life is that it is full with pretenders. And there are people who... Um, there, there are people who do it with purposely and intentionally, but pretense and the, the deceptions of the self and the failure of a human being to confront themselves transparently and bravely is is a, a, a common symptom and this culminates as Surah al-Baqarah tells us in that those who dwell those who are inflicted by self-deception ultimately cause corruption they they spread corruption on earth but they're argumentative about it and that when you they're told not to corrupt they never concede the point that the corruption that results is actually something that they've produced or they've created that when ultimately 
قَالُوا إِنَّمَا نَحْنُ مُصْلِحُونَ That they insist that it, not only are they not corrupt, but they see themselves as people who do good. Now, Surah Al-Baqarah starts out with this because the critical point that a Muslim cannot derive their value system or derive their sense of righteousness or derive their sense of uh, um, um, or validate themselves from social dynamics because part of the entire paradigm shift that Islam comes with and in fact it's not just Islam but even going back to uh, our father Ibrahim والسلام, is that your value system comes directly from Allah and that your relationship with Allah has to be stronger than anything else and it has to be sufficiently strong to overcome even the layers of fogs of deception that you find in society and that your ability to anchor yourself in a relationship with your maker is really the, the only real guarantee that you have that you won't find yourself ultimately sucked in and becoming or joining the party of those who are doing ifsad for the party of those who are corrupting the earth and corrupting the earth remember because Surah Al-Baqarah will deal with this later corrupting the earth is not simply those who are engaged in criminal enterprises corrupting the earth are anything that deviates from what everything the Quran has taught us to point to to this point so the mutaffifin are corruptors on earth right those who are incrementally immoral those who uh, cheat in scales and weights are corruptors on earth those who fail to uphold their covenants and promises and obligations are corruptors on earth. Those who do fail to take care of the wayfarer and the orphan and even the, the prisoner are corruptors on earth. So in other words, all those who fail to be virtuous are corruptors on earth. Normally, we, we think of corruptors on earth in terms of very large, you know, this is partly because the way we're socialized. The way we're socialized is, you know, the law will tell us who is, who commits a felony. And only those who commit felonies, that's even if you're law abiding. Uh, beyond felonies, we don't think that it's corruption on earth. But there are plenty of things that we do 
that are not felonies in terms of secular law that counts as corruption on earth. If you are, if you're arrogant with those who are less fortunate than you, you're a corrupter on earth. If you're racist, you're a corrupter on earth. If you're a classist, same thing. If you deal in riba, as Surah Al-Baqarah will talk about later, you you are, and in fact, it's, it's those who deal in riba are described in very concrete terms, something even beyond corruption on earth. But as we will see, corruption on earth could also entails all types of relationships of dishonesty and oppression and subjugation. So Surah Al-Baqarah will take us eventually to rules about marriage and divorce. And when you hold someone in a marital relationship in an oppressive dynamic, like for instance, rendering them a mu'allaqa, mu'allaqa someone who is, un, is neither divorced nor married. That's corruption on earth. So when Surah Al-Baqarah starts out by alerting us to the problem of duality and the problem of dishonesty and the problem of those who corrupt on, on earth, if you read Surah an ayah apart, then you miss the point. You miss the point, why? Because if you study Surah Al-Baqarah, you realize that it begins with flagging an issue, but the entire theme of Surah Al-Baqarah illustrates to you all the nuances of that problem. Okay. So then we move on And we've talked about um, yeah. so if we can move on to um, let's go. Let's go to 17. I told you that we're going to come, we would come back, inshallah, to this ayah. مَثَلُونَ كَمَثَلِ الَّذِي اسْتَوْقَضَ نَارًا فَلَمَّا أَضَاءَتْ مَا حَوْلَهُ ذَهَبَ اللَّهُ بِنُورِهِمْ وَتَرَكَهُمْ فِي ظُلُمَاتٍ لَا يُبْصِرُونَ سُمٌ بُكْمٌ عُمْيٌ فَهُمْ لَا يَرْجِعُونَ أو كصيب من السماء فيه ظلمات ورعد وبرق يجعلون أصابعهم في آذانهم من الصواعق حذر الموت والله محيط بالكافرين. So this is seventeen to nineteen.
So, the Quranic parable bears some reflection So, this parable is, we often find in the Surah of the Qur'an, a parable that is given towards the beginning of the Surah or sometimes in the middle. But those parables that are given in the middle of, I mean, sorry, in the beginning of the Surah, I call them often guiding parables because once you finish studying the entire surah and you look at the discourse of the surah and you find that the discourse fits the original, the beginning parable like a glove. So the parable is not happenstance. And it is not to just register a minor point. So they are like a people who kindle a fire and once this fire has ignited, Allah takes away their light. Now, traditionally, they say, they, uh, traditionally, they've always understood this parable as that once the fire is there, Allah takes away their light because they lose their eyesight, so they become blind. So it's like the light, the, the fire that they ignited, they can't really benefit from it. Or they benefit from it dangerously because they can't benefit from its glow, but they can perhaps benefit from its heat. Yet, because they're blind, they can easily burn themselves. But if you look at the language, is that once they've ignited the fire, Allah takes away their light. The fire that they ignited is a physical material reality. What that physical material reality, what how much light that you that you you manage to get going, how much actual light it will yield, so it can illuminate the darkness is actually quite limited. And it has nothing to do with real guidance. 
it illuminates only a very limited material reality around you. If you have no inner guidance, that material reality is of very limited usefulness. So put differently, those people think that being um, like a, a, this is a, a, just a, a project um, um, project lumen um, that being illuminated or being munawar, uh, you know, being um, enlightened. They fell in the trap of thinking that enlightenment is a matter of producing the appropriate amount of fire that will reflect the, the right amount of light. But that has nothing to do with enlightenment. In fact, you can generate whatever rays, uh, uh, you know, what, whatever... Um, wavelengths that remove relatively a certain amount of darkness around you, but still internally you are entirely lost and entirely misguided. Reliance, this blind reliance on material factors for the idea of guidance is precisely the problem that Surat al-Baqarah comes back to again and again and again. In fact, when it then describes these people, it says, Summun, Bukmun, Umyun, Fahum la yarjuun. They are as if deaf, dumb, and blind. So, it is not just that they are deaf, dumb, and blind is, is often a metaphor for people who are entirely lost. Regardless of their relationship to material things, it's ultimately pointless. La yarji'un, unable to find their way, regardless of how many fires they manage to ignite in the material world. And we'll see how this so, we can, if you put it, put it differently, it's when you come to someone who um, um, has, someone, the expression we use, you, someone who sees with their heart rather than sees with their eye. Where does that come from? 
it comes with from your relationship with Allah. How are you going to know though the difference between corruptors and do-gooders? Al-Mufsidun wal Muslihun. If you're the way you measure things is in terms of material logic, you will always, like any good lawyer, you will always find a rational basis to justify corruption as good. Human beings can always resort to empirical claims to say, well, you know, let's understand special circumstances. That's what all we, human beings rarely say it's a good thing to kill and, and murder and, you know, but they will always resort to empirical claims that effectively justify and defend immoral conduct. So, I mean, the, the, the typical example of this is that when um, uh, in every oppressive relationship, the elite will claim that a small minority suffers so that they, the elite, can thrive and through the thriving of the elite, the elite can then help out or extend benefits to the populace at large. And the small minority, that's the claim that is always since the dawn of history has always been how you justify immoral things, is that elite will say, well, you know, yeah, you see this small group of people that starve to death, the small group of people that rot in prison, the small group of people who get slaughtered in war, the small group of people that get that disappear or get abducted or whatever happens to them, um, or are lost to piracy as in the old days or are whatever. Look at the larger picture. Yes, there's a small group of people that no one cares about. They're, they suffer. They, they're worth nothing. But the system at large allows us to enjoy our privilege. And by enjoying our privilege, by living in the places we live in and running the industries we run or the farms or whatever, uh, we provide you with jobs and and we help you out, and so in turn, you can eat. So effectively convincing the majority to ignore the woes of the minority, because as long as the majority lives, then we can all ignore the suffering of the minority. Is that clear? We'll see how Surah Al-Baqarah comes back to this. It will turn back to the issue of that that type of logic, but for now, that is the typical utilitarian empirical type of d defenses that one constructs for what from if you are not 
premising yourself on a sense of right and wrong that from an Islamic perspective is anchored in the teachings of God of black and white, it is very easy to accept and, and, and the image here is remarkable, to very easy to simply accept that fire that casts a small circle of light in the darkness as illumination, but has nothing to do with illumination. Yes, you can ignite as many fires as you want, but you still live in darkness. Okay. Or, like people, and this is the second parable, Or like people who are, in, first let me read the translation and then I'll count them. Okay. A cloud burst in the sky with utter darkness, thunder, and lightning. And they put their fingers in their ears to keep out the peals of thunder in terror of death. But God encompasses with God's might all who deny the truth. The lightning well nigh takes away their sight, and whenever it gives them light, they advance therein, and whenever the darkness falls around them, they stand still. But if God so willed, God could indeed take away their hearing and their sight, for verily God has the power to will anything. So in this second parable, There is thunder, there is lightning. Now, when you put your fingers in your ears in fear of death, when there is thunder, you are, what you are doing is entirely useless. You're not going to be killed by thunder because your ears are unobstructed. So, your relationship to the material things, as the Qur'an consistently maintains, is impressionistic and based on very limited perspective that human beings as created things, in, as created beings in a much larger universe, what is available to them is extremely limited. And what they base their reality on is extremely limited. And what they often rely on to forego God's guidance is extremely misleading. So that's the first thing, is that they find themselves in thunder and lightning, and so they're terrified of death, so they put their fingers in their ears. But second, is that 
they progress only when the lightning lifts the darkness. But every time the lightning goes, they stop. How much progress is going to be achieved if you only move forward when there is light from lightning? Very limited progress. Now, if you are relating to the created world from a purely material logic, It might make sense that, well, you know, we let's just move forward as long as we have this lightning that comes from the sky. And let's stay static and unmoving as long as we don't have lightning that comes from the sky. And let's fear what sounds loud and scary Although the real danger is that you'll be struck by lightning because you're moving in lightning. The real danger is not from the thunder. The thunder comes, the, the lightning comes, but then the thunder comes later. It, it, the thunder itself is not what endangers your life. It's the lightning that endangers your life, if anything. But the parable, the image that the Quran sets, is as if human beings, when they rely purely on material reality to define what is appropriate, to define their normative being, it is as if they define progress and the, 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 the impulses of life in extremely um, short-sighted things like whether lightning is providing them with light and whether the absence of lightning now requires them to stand still. This is highly insufficient and highly unsatisfying. Again, symbolically, the perception they need, the awareness they need, must go beyond the material elements of lightning in the sky and darkness and thunderstorm. Living captivated to these elements alone is indeed a terrifying image. Although we don't think because, you know, lightning doesn't last a bit, but if you are living life without anything beyond your material existence. The Quran creates an image that you need to, to ponder and reflect upon.
Because what the Quran is telling you, it's as if your sense of reality is precisely as deceptive as living with thunderstorm, things that scare you, lightning, what you believe is light, but it is actually extremely limiting, and it doesn't really reveal anything of the truth, and then darkness. It's an image that makes you feel the loneliness, the insecurity, the fear, the deception. Okay. And we'll see how later on these metaphors become, uh, are serve the entire soul. Okay. So, then... Next, we should pause at um, we already talked about uh, verse twenty six the where Allah. And, and we've already commented about this, that this is the, uh, when Allah says that uh, Allah can, can give a parable, whether a mosquito, smaller or bigger, and we've talked about the context of how that came up, uh, is in, in light of the polemics between the Israelites and the early Muslims, Again, I just want to quickly flag 27. The, going back again to the theme of corruption on earth. And Allah's covenant and that 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 um, construct that without maintaining your covenant with Allah, without maintaining your relationship with Allah, it is inevitable that the result will be corruption on earth. Yes. So thirty-eight. So this is right after the Quran talks about what we've already, I think said enough about for now that the story of cre of creation was Adam and the the, uh, the frustration of the angels and uh, the sin and so on but right after we are told that Adam is forgiven and Adam and Eve are forgiven for the using that responsibility and the intellectual capacity wrongfully and they're forgiven 
And then 38. So Allah then informs them that life is going to be on earth. In other words, they will inherit the earth. And they will receive guidance but those and those who follow God's guidance they have no reason to fear and no reason for sadness the reason we pause at this is that we know that revealed books were not given to human beings immediately. For one, human beings remained illiterate for a very long time. Literacy, although human beings developed written language, but for literacy to be become a reliable medium, it took a considerable amount of time. And at what point we, we know Ibrahim as the father of the prophets, and we know the narrative in the Quran of Ibrahim who reflects about upon the oneness of God and uses innate guidance to understand the oneness of God and reject idolatry. So among the points that Muslim theologians debate and, and here I'm talking about, of course, pre-modern theologians, is when Allah says, فَمَنْ تَبِعَ هُدَيْ فَإِمَّا يَأْتِيَنَّكُمْ مِنِّي هُدَى فَمَنْ تَبِعَ هُدَيْ فَلَا خَوْفٌ عَلَيْهِمْ وَلَا هُمْ يَحْزَنُونَ This guidance, what does that mean? That you will receive guidance. Does it only mean, does it mean the book revealed to Moses, the book revealed to Isa alayhi salam, uh, and so on and so forth? But if so, the number of books revealed are far less than the number of prophets. And the number of prophets that we know about are far less than the number of human beings. This is why many Muslim theologians argued that there is no way around 
the necessity of understanding that al-huda al-awwal original guidance or and here original guidance doesn't mean original first in time original means a priori guidance guidance that is more basic than anything else is ما ركب فيهم من من العقول ونصب لهم من الأدلة is your reason that's the original guidance the a priori guidance that and of course this is a, a, a very big issue but anyway that reason which is capable as illustrated to us by the story of Ibrahim reason that the Prophet Muhammad used to worship Allah with before he became a prophet because he becomes a prophet when he's 40 years old but he worships Allah before he's 40 years old according to his reason. He purifies himself as a human being and becomes a sadiq, an amin, the trustworthy and the honest, the truthful, according to his reason. So a priori virtue is anchored in reason affirmed by revelation. Of course, this this position is something that the other hadith absolutely were unhappy with. But you would be surprised, and other hadith have have tried to convince everyone that if you say that, then you must be a mu'tazila, but. You'll be surprised that, for instance, the Mataridi, who was clearly not a Mu'tazili, or a Razi, who criticizes the Mu'tazila consistently throughout his tafsir, that has, this position has nothing to do with being a Mu'tazili or not a Mu'tazili. The notion that the a priori guidance had to be the intellect in the same way that when Allah gives Adam the covenant remember this this is said right after we are told about the narrative of Adam right Allah gives Adam the covenant Allah gives Adam the choice the instrument, instrumentality for that choice is the intellect. So Muslim theologians would often say, so what if you had Adam and Eve? What if Shaitan would have come to Adam and said, kill Eve? And what if Adam would have killed Eve? 
Would Adam have been able to say, oh, oh God, but you didn't tell me not to kill my wife? Most theologians said, no, it would be a clear wrong. Allah says, I didn't tell you to, to not kill your wife, but you should have known simply by the elements of reason, the intellect that you've been given. That when Allah creates something, you don't have the right to exterminate its existence. Now, it might be that you err in saying, I misread a text and I interpreted that text to give me the right to exterminate existence. And that's an error in reading. But that's very different from saying, I thought I have the right to exterminate what God created just because my judgment is equal to God's. Now, we, we get into the issue of plain errors in interpreting text, but that's a different, that takes us to, to levels of complexity and that we, we don't need to go into. But there are a priori elements of reason. Most Muslim theologians, the vast majority, said that Tawheed itself is an a priori element of reason. Knowing that there is only one God, why? Because if there were many gods, we would not have found unity in creation. That Al-Qur'an al-Makhluq yadullu ala al-Khaliq al-Wahid. That the created Qur'an indicates a single creator. To simply say that there is creation exists without a first cause, again, most Muslim theologians thought is contrary to reason. It's like saying an encyclopedia wrote itself, or an encyclopedia found its way to writing itself eventually. So, this, this issue right, coming right after the Allah puts Adam and Eve on earth, the reason I, I also flag it, other than the theological debates about it, is that, and again, as I said in, in, in a previous halakha, whether in fact this is a, and I, and I don't, I, you know, I, whether this is a, a, a parable or there were actually Adam and Eve as the beginning of all creation is beside the point. The point is, is that would it have been, would a just God put human beings on earth and obligate them to do good without giving them the instrumentality for goodness? If the intellect is entirely 
incapable of realizing any elements, a priori elements of goodness, like don't kill, for instance, then how could God put human beings on earth and charge them with doing good if they received no instrumentality for doing it? There are many other numerous, I'm, I'm summarizing an extremely nuanced tradition and sophisticated tradition, in, in, but just so people know that when you find modern Muslims spewing generalizations about this, it is because 99% of the time, it is because they don't, they don't have the ability to read the theological text written in the Islamic tradition. Very few Muslims can read Razi's discussion on these specific issues and actually understand what Razi is saying. There are plenty of Muslims who can skim that section and skip over it and then pretend that they've read Razi. But that is the reality we're locked into. Is that a lot a lot of the generalizations you hear, you hear on the basis of what people assume must exist, not on the basis of actual vetting of what the Islamic tradition has generated and produced. Like If the intellect is not a huda, then that would create a problem when we talk about the just God who gives a covenant to human beings on earth, but without a guiding instrument. If the intellect is not a guiding instrument, then Adam and Eve would have been put on earth without a guiding instrument, but told to achieve guidance. And, and many other issues like that. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Um, about this uh, original guidance or a priori guidance, the, the intellect, I said that, you know, what if Adam would have killed Eve? But the example that actually is often uh, discussed is Habil uh, al-Qabil, Aben Cain and Abel. Oh, Cain and Abel, Habil al-Qabil, Cain and Abel. Of course, you know, the one brother kills another, and innately, and it is a sin, it is a wrong, without there being a revealed book. Um, so, in fact, you, you have that the, uh, as a as an example that is a Quranic example that is often 
the 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 other thing I remembered is that often, uh, unless you are philosophically trained or an, a very intuitively pure person, uh, we often have a difficult time ascertaining guidance through the intellect. Um, but there is a around the way or a back door to, to this. And that is a lot of people might not intuitively know uh, what is right or wrong, but a lot of people intuitively know what is probably the results of whisperings of shaitan. And you find a lot of people They'll say, I mean, they'll, they'll, even they'll tell themselves or tell their friends or tell people they trust, you know, I don't know, but may, probably this is just the shaitan speaking, but X, Y, and Z. Well, if you reach that point where you're telling yourself it's probably the shaitan speaking, then it's probably is the shaitan speaking, and it's probably your intellect, your your inner Rasul, your inner uh, messenger, is telling you what's right and what's wrong. But the problem is that we are, as most of us, the vast majority of us, are very good at dismissing that initial voice, that voice of right and wrong that comes and tells us at the very beginning. Um, and we always find a way to say, well, yeah, maybe these are the whisperings of the shaitan, but A, either saying, well, they're not the whisperings of the shaitan because I feel I have reasons, whatever the reasons we come up with are. Or we say, well, maybe they're the whisperings of the shaitan, but I have compelling reasons that make these whisperings irrelevant. A word of advice, if you are, if you tell yourself in any given situation, if you pause and you, something inside of you is telling you, these are, maybe I am, these are the whisperings of the shaitan, then more likely than not, very more likely than not, it is precisely that, the whisperings of shaitan, and uh, your, your inner messenger is... Um, sounding the alarm. Just the, the real challenge is to catch yourself when you're ignoring, you know, it's like uh, if you're, the alarm going off in the morning to wake you up and then you, 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 you wake up and you silence the alarm and go back to bed. That's precisely, most of the time, our relationship with our conscience is uh, we silence the alarm and go back to bed. Okay. So then 
Note that although, as we said, that the first <coughs> half of Surah Al-Baqarah, or, or less than the first half, maybe one-third of the first one-third of Surah Al-Baqarah, is directly addressing the Israelites, and which we've talked about. But so much of what Surah Al-Baqarah tells the Israelites is directly relevant to us or to human beings in general. So for instance, in 42, so, this, from 42-43, the temptation to suppress a truth for material gains, for, for whatever material advances that one imagines it is something relevant well beyond just uh, talking to the Israelites. And the reminder again and again, even to the Israelites, to وَأَقِيمُوا الصَّلَاةُ to persevere in prayer, to give alms, um, something clearly that is relevant beyond the Israelite con context. Um, and then in 44, do you counsel people to do good and forget yourselves? The challenge for every person that turns their gaze outwards at others rather than inwards. The, the, the risk whenever you notice the faults of others, the, the constant uh, haunting ghost that is after you, whenever you turn your gaze to look at the faults of others, is that you will notice the faults of others and forget yourself. And that is a consistent risk and something that, of course, repeatedly the Quran, you know, emphasizes as part of the ABCs of righteousness. Is you cannot and it's and it is the heart of nifaq as the prophet says to counsel others on something that you yourself uh, do not abide by okay and of course then the very famous verse 45 that the path of morality itself Again, although this is speaking to the Israelites, but it is relevant 
which is consistent with the theme of Surah Al-Baqarah, of illustrating where the Israelites went wrong and where you're supposed to learn from these lessons, is that these moral challenges, the moral challenge of double standards, the moral challenge of uh, focusing on the faults of others and forgetting what you yourself confront, um, the moral challenge of turning religion into a vehicle for egoism or a vehicle for profit, um, all of that, the instrumentality to resist all of this is perseverance, prayer, these are truly formidable challenges, except those who truly humbled themselves before their God. Those who see themselves as living in the eyesight of God. Moral conscientiousness is more often than not, in most cases, premised on an act of humility. When you are in a state of hubris, when you are in a state of egoism, it is very difficult to be morally conscientious. The handmaiden of moral conscientiousness is a state of humility where you are constantly looking inwards and holding yourself responsible before anyone else does. Okay. Um, there is, on verse 45, there is a narrative um, that would probably be useful to, um, in the reports traditions. This is re reported about, um, on Ibn, uh, about Ibn Abbas, um, but it's also reported about other companions of the Prophet. And the prototype of the narrative is the following. Let's take, uh, let's just stick with the Ibn Abbas narrative. Ibn Abbas is narrated that he either, he was, he was traveling when the news reached him that um, in one narrative that it was his brother who died, in another narrative that it was his son who died. And Ibn Abbas stops the caravan and steps down and starts praying. And after he prays, he recites, um, That narrative illustrates the impact of this verse 45 on the Islamic tradition. Is that when, whenever you are confronting a challenge 
whether that challenge is a major loss, a major disappointment, a major heartache, a major hardship, that your, your aid, your, the, the in, your tool for perseverance is patience, sabr, and prayer. And that all challenges in life can be insurmountable for those who do not have khushu'ah. And khushu'ah is not just taqwa, it's not just reverence of Allah. But khushu'ah is the acceptance of understanding your place in existence and the acceptance of Allah's sovereignty as supremacy, as total. And that Allah's will trumps all. And so you find in the Islamic tradition, you know, this, this, um, the, the, the moral impact of this revelation um, is precisely that. Okay. So then, we already talked, when Surah Al-Baqarah talks about Ali Fir'aun, we've noted this in the last halaqah that this, and besides a lot of other surah that talk about Ali Fir'aun, that in Islamic literature, it had become a common theme to see Fir'aun as a symbol for all oppressive and unjust despots, but also for Fir'aun to be a symbol for the inner despot. And the, the very common, um, and this is, of course, the Sufis are the ones that who took it and ran away with it and, and developed it, is that to constantly interrogate your own Fir'aun and that you'll often find in Sufi literature, for, for instance, written that for every human being there is their own Fir'aun and there, there is their own Moses. And their Moses is the that inner voice that stands against the despotism of the self and the egoism of the self and the selfishness of the self and speaks the voice of righteousness it tells you the sacrifice that you ought to make that sort of inner voice that comes to you and says no you know this is not right you know you should do this or do that but like the real Fir'aun, the Fir'aun is very good at completely ignoring what Moses, the voice of Moses, have to say in the South. Um, okay. Then, up to verse 106, It addresses what we've talked about in the discourse with the Israelites, 
including the um, including the discourse on the heifer, which we'll come back to later. And we already talked about uh, 102, which uh, deals with the issue, issue of sorcery. And as I said before, that unlike the Bible that describes Solomon as a king, um, a king who is often involved in a lot of unsavory things, um, the Quran defends Sulaiman as a prophet of God and uh, and in the Talmudic tradition especially um, Solomon's relationship to what becomes the language of sorcery and black magic is grossly exaggerated I mean there's so many much mythology about this um, but in the Islamic tradition, nothing in utilizing jinn to serve human purposes goes back to the Prophet Sulaiman um, It is a corruption of you know whether it is said to have been um, what what was actually documented by the scribes of Sulaiman, or something that Sulaiman even didn't know was being scribed. Beside the point, but that it doesn't go back to the Prophet Sulaiman and therefore has no nexus to prophetic origin. But it's. It's an inversion of the order of things. And so that's why in, in sorcery and in black magic, often when, for instance, um, the writer, the Quran is written from, be, from end to beginning, or the Quran is written upside down, it, it is always black magic, it's always an inversion of the order of things. You take the natural order of things and you invert it. And that's the logic of accessing the, the powers that we are not supposed to mess around with in any way, shape, or form. We'll come back to shaitan later on when uh, Surah Al-Baqarah talks about uh, Rima, but interestingly enough. Okay. So we're going to pause at 106 because of this is often known as the abrogation verse. So 106 is often translated as whatever ayah 
we abrogate or cause to be forgotten, Allah reveals something better. In the Muhammad Asad translation, He says, any message which we annul or consign to oblivion, we replace with a better or a similar one, thus thou not know that God has the power to will anything, thus thou not know that God is the dominion over the heavens and earth, and that besides God you have none to protect you or bring, bring you succor. This is, of course, 106 and 107. But the reason I posit this because of the abrogation verse. Abrogation is a very big topic in, in Islamic jurisprudence. And in so much of the jurisprudential literature, you know, they'll tell you that uh, the law could be abrogated, but the text remains. Or the text could be abrogated, but the law remains. Or the text and the law could be abrogated altogether. And normally this ayah, 106, is cited as evidence that of, abrog of the existence of abrogation in the Quran. That Allah could abrogate a law, but keep the words that created the law in the first place in the Quran. And the most classic example of this are the jurists who say that a, a verse on jihad, often called the verse of a safe or the sword verse, abrogated many other verses that um, talked about um, no compulsion in religion or that talked about um, do not uh, do not commit aggression against others etc etc I don't believe in abrogation it doesn't mean that I don't believe it doesn't mean that I believe all the laws are unchanging. In fact, if you know anything about my scholarship, you know that in Reasoning for God, in God for instance, I have, I, I set out a methodology that accepts the fact that God's law uh, evolves and develops but abrogation in the traditional sense of a later verse abrogating an earlier verse is something that I don't accept I don't believe in for many different reasons so how about this area and here I just want to cover a perspective that you rarely hear in the modern age about the abrogation verse. Notice the context of verse 106. 
it has it occurs in the context of a long discussion with the Israelites and the historical precedent of the Israelites and the including the laws revealed to the Israelites that are no longer valid for Muslims. And not just the Israelites, but also towards right before 106, is it starts talking about Christians as well. And in the earlier, in some of the earlier tefasir, the very early uh, commentators on the Quran was a perspective that I believe it was the correct one and that the import of Ayatul Nasr, the 106, was referring to the laws before Islam and the messages before Islam. Part of the polemic of the Jewish tribes in Medina was that what the law that God gave Moses cannot possibly have been abrogated because God does not change God's mind. That's part of the polemic. And as well as the idea that, well, how could the, the how could God reveal Christianity? And, and of course, I mean, because they didn't accept the, the thesis of corruption anyway. But how could God reveal a message to Jesus and a message to Moses? And some particulars of this message, like the law of the Sabbath, for instance, is not upheld by Muhammad. And so part of the polemic of the Jewish tribes to Muhammad and his followers was that, well, if you were a real prophet, you would have upheld the law of the Sabbath, for instance and some other particular laws that part, some of them that Surah Al-Baqarah itself deals with. And the response of the Quran was quite simply that these are laws that were appropriate for the Israelites for the particular legacy of the Israelites. But that they are no longer valid because God has abrogated these laws. That's a very different matter than saying that revelation in the Quran abrogates revelation in the Quran. The same argument was made by Muhammad Abdu in his tafsir and I think Muhammad Abdul was precisely 
on point that the it is the the um And also, Zamakh Shari makes the same type of uh, same argument, and I think that Muhammad Abdul himself was inspired by Zamakh Shari. That um, interpreters of the Quran would find verses that, in their mind, were inconsistent, and then they would come to the conclusion that it must be that a later verse abrogated an earlier verse. But to make an argument or make a claim that of a revelation being abrogated by later revelation, you need something more than what you believe to be an apparent contradiction. Because that's a matter of an, an interpretive judgment. You think that the two are inconsistent, and hence you come to the conclusion that there is abrogation. But for there to be abrogation, you actually need independent evidence where God says, this abrogates this evidence other than an interpretive judgment. Other than an apparent contradiction to you in your subjective judgment. And in the vast majority of cases, we have no independent evidence of God saying, this abrogates this. In the vast majority of cases where jurists have said, something later in the Qur'an abrogated something earlier in the Qur'an, it was simply premised on an apparent contradiction. That's too subjective and too flimsy to say that there is abrogation. Unless God tells you explicitly, specifically, this is abrogated, then on what authority are you saying it's abrogated? That doesn't mean that law doesn't change. And it is one thing to say that law develops according to its purposes, or law develops according to its operative causes, but it's entirely different to say that the law was abrogated. And especially when the basis for that is nothing more than what you perceive to be a contradiction. Um, so, Okay. So, as I said, that the the so-called abrogation verse occurs in the midst of the polemic with Jews and Christians, and especially right before 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Muslims are under a tremendous amount of pressure, and we've talked about the pressure that they confronted when they arrived in Medina. Both the migrants and the native converts. And notice, in 108, That rhetorical question gives you a vivid sense of the amount of stress and pressure that Muslims felt they were under. Because, do you, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a rhetorical question, say, or is it that you would want to ask the apostle what was previously asked of Moses, and what was previously asked of Moses? The Israelites at some point told Moses that we, as you've seen God, we want to see God. We want that, and the, 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 um, and the various other things, like when Moses was told, well, you know, we're, we're bored with the, the uh, food staple that we have in Dias and Diaspora, we want to go back to our oppressors. And so that rhetorical question posed to Muslims, yes, you've now arrived in Medina and life is very hard. Do you dare tell your prophet, like the Israelites told Moses, we want to go back to our earlier life of relative comfort? Or we are constantly under um, a, a propaganda campaign by all our opponents in Medina that we would feel better if in fact, God would perform, because that was one of the, the, the big stresses, is that the hypocrites was constantly telling the prophet, well, if you're a real prophet and telling Muslims and you, your prophet is a real prophet, why doesn't he do some of the miracles of Moses and some of the miracles of Jesus? If this was a true prophet, have him do some spectacular stuff like Jesus did and like Moses did. And the temptation for Muslims under it, it, who are constantly engaged in these polemics is to want an easy win by saying, yeah, you know, why doesn't God send a miracle like that? But that, the stage that Islam entered among the things abrogated with the age of miracles, the age of the spectacular. Now, guidance is from a revealed text, not the 
preserved mythology that goes down through the ages. And miracles are seen by the people who experience it. But once you accept the logic of miracles, you must continuously perform them for each new generation. Otherwise, they're invalid. Otherwise, they just become a myth, myth like any other myth. And so that is among the things where we're abrogated. Okay. And right after, again, in 109, and 109 is very significant. And let's read the translation first. Out of selfish envy, many among the followers of earlier revelation would like to bring you back to denying the truth after you have attained to faith. Even after the truth has become clear to them. Nonetheless, forgive and forbear until God shall make manifest God's will. Behold, God has the power to will anything. So, Remember that in Surah Al-Baqarah, among the things that Allah notes is that the people of the book in Medina, they, as the Quran describes, that they would brag about being the guided people and the Arabs being, in our modern languages, or, or savages, um, primitive, within tribal morality, but nothing more. And the, there was unlike our modern age access to revealed or access to um, um, what is supposed to be divine text, access to the Bible, whether it was access to the Torah or access to the Injil, was something that is was heavily regulated by the clergy. Among the, the things that was part of the Islamic revolution, was a revealed text that is memorized by the common person. And what threatened to be a chaotic situation where every Muslim was free to keep it written, no one had, very few people had a complete copy of the Quran. Because in that age, that 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 was a real challenge. I mean, we, we forget often how history was. And in history, you what you memorized, you memorized. And then for if you were 
illiterate person, and literacy was not that common, you would either write some things, or if you were not literate, you would pay someone to write you some things. Okay, so what threatened to be a chaotic situation, and that is various Muslims were keeping parchments, and until Uthman codified, in other words, said, this is, these are the authentic copies of the Quran, it was a chaotic situation because there was a widespread preservation of various parchments and pieces of the Quran in various media, uh, mediums, written mediums, whether bones or skin or palm trees or etc., etc. Okay, but this situation was something uniquely Islamic. What existed before? What existed before is that the class of um, clergy or the um, uh, sages, well, let's use sages for, there would be a copy of the Bible or a copy of the Torah Copies of both the Bible and the Torah were rare. And they were very closely guarded over by a, cler by a clergy that, so for instance, in the Catholic Church, up to um, many centuries, I mean, I forgot what, what year it was, um, it was considered a major offense for anyone to actually, any Christian, to read from the Bible. You, you, you were only allowed access to the Bible through a priest. It, it, reading the Bible itself was a major offense. So, and actually, people would be burned as heretics if they went and obtained a copy of the Bible behind the back of the church. In the Jewish tradition, access to the Torah was similarly heavily regulated. And when you regulate, you have a literate class, and the literate class carefully regulate access to the revealed text, you also regulate the truth. And Part of the dynamics with the illiterate Arabs before Islam was to say, we have a revealed book. It's like the durus of today. No one is allowed to see the revealed book, um, um, who still exists in Syria. You know, it's, it, it, you can live and die as a durzi all your life and never see a copy of the revealed book it is considered a major offense for a non-Durzi to see the revealed book. That is classic medieval mind frame. And so part of the polemic before Islam is that we have an access to truth that you can't even imagine ever having access to. But that revealed book tells us things that makes us 
a special privileged class. That's what istiftah meant, that they used to brag about the revealed book. The lay person, the lay Christian or the lay Jew would say, yes, I, I don't, I, well, obviously I can't read the revealed book, but my priests, my rabbis told me what's in the revealed book. And I am superior to you because I have access to you. And this was something that Arabs were in awe of. They've never seen a copy of the Torah. They've never seen a copy of the Bible. They would never see one. It was extremely expensive to own one. And who's going to give you access to to that? When Islam comes, part of the polemic was now Muslims were going around reciting God's revelation. And this generated a very fascinating polemic between the the uh, the clergy wanting to maintain their privileged position said, well, if this was truly God's revelation, laity, poor people, illiterate people wouldn't go around reciting it. If this was truly God's revelation, Muhammad would have be the keeper of the secret scrolls that no one would have access to except those who are, you know, go through the, the um, processes of consecration and purification that would allow them to be the, to handle the divine scrolls or the divine text. But that egalitarian revolution of, you know, anyone from Ali bin Abi Talib, you know, who is the Prophet's cousin and closest to the Prophet and so on, go around citing the Quran and someone who just converted to Islam learned the Quran and reciting it. And the Quran comes and responds to this and say, don't be fooled. What is behind all of this is envy. It is, it it has nothing to do with being the keepers of the solemn truth. It has everything to do with the tables of power and privilege being turned upside down. And so much so that while you respect them as Jews and Christians, they wish you would go back to being the ignorant, idiotic Arabs they've always dealt with. It's a, it's, it's um. When you, when you study the the what was behind this verse, you're you're struck by a very vivid historical image and a very vivid historical dynamic. Um, and you get a sense for, you also then understand more the insistence of the Quran 
on the age of miracles is over. Because this revolution is not about wowing people with parting the Red Sea. This, this revolution is introducing a new age, a civilization, as I've called it, the civilization of books, in book, my book, Conference of the Books, because it's literally that. The Byzantine civilization, or the Israelite civilization before that, or all the other civilizations, and go ahead and study it. Spend a lifetime reading as much history as you want. The number of texts produced in the entire civilizations of China and Japan that existed at the time, every civilization that existed in India at the time, Every civilization that existed in Africa to date, every civilization that existed in Byzantia today, the number of texts is minuscule compared to the amount of texts produced in the Islamic civilization. Again, if Muslims were the writers of history, if Muslims were not a colonized people, this would be such an obvious fact. It's just a matter of reported manuscripts, and it is, it is so, I mean, it is undeniable, because the, what occurs in the Islamic civilization is a literal explosion of texts. Uh, even when we talk about the ancient library of Alexandria, it was, it was never the level of production of text city by city. So in, in, in the entire ancient civilization, the library of Alexandria was a major event. But how many equivalents of the library of Alexandria were generated just in the first 300 years of Islam? The Library of Alexandria, the reason it became it so famous is because it was such an exceptional thing. It was a, a, something that everyone in the world took note of, and its destruction plunged so much of the world into darkness. For, But the entire destruction of numerous libraries in Baghdad during the Mongol invasion was nothing. The, in, the destruction of tons of libraries in Andalusia and the Reconquesta and the burning of so many texts because of the massive production of texts in the Islamic civilization. And then note, before we leave this, is that while the Quran sort of exposes the, this dynamic and says, well, you know, this is all envy. But its response to Muslims in the same surah that will talk about the obligation to engage in warfare later is that in re your reaction to 
this dynamic is wa'fu waswahu forbear and forgive this is in the same surah in which we get the first permission to go to warfare but there are circumstances where the quran says respond in kind mean respond violently and other circumstances in the same surah where it says your response should be forgiveness for and most commentators say that until Allah lets the fate that Allah decreed or Allah wants unfold because their envy that you responded to with forbearance and forgiveness is going to amount to nothing. It's neither going to be here nor there because ultimately events that will follow will overcome that reality and render it insignificant. And again, the, extor the exhortion to, to pray and alms. See how often the Quran keeps coming back and remind you repeatedly. It's like the Quran couldn't be clearer. Every time the Quran demands something that is challenging like forgiveness or um, like even understanding constantly it is prayer and giving and it's not giving the you know the alms meaning the two and a half percent that but in relationship to God based on a a, a or anchoring yourself in a relationship to Allah and anchoring yourself in a relationship to material things where you're not attached to material things. Okay. We already talked about 111 where the Christians and Jews say only Christians and Jews will enter heaven and the refutation of that by the Quran I want again to underscore 112 that who literally turns his face to Allah and surrenders to Allah. Wahua muhsinun and does what is good, does what is beautiful, does what is righteous. As Razi notes, and as the Makhshari notes, and as Muhammad Abdu notes, and as Ibn Arabi notes that 
Aslama wajahulillah means whether you are Christian, Jewish, Muslim, as long as you surrender yourself to Allah and do what is good, then you have la khawfun alayhim walahum yahzanun. That, so some people come and say, oh, so it doesn't matter if you're Muslim? I say, no, it matters if you're Muslim. Because true, meaningful surrender, as a Muslim, I believe that true, meaningful surrender to Allah is not possible without being a Muslim. However, there are many Muslims who never surrender their face to Allah. Or even who surrender, they don't do ihsan. They don't do what is beautiful. But there are many non-Muslims who do surrender their face to Allah and who do do good. And it is not for me to tell them, oh, you, you, you will go to heaven. That's not my place. But what I tell them is, you, you and I must trust in a just God. My religion tells me I worship a just God. While it is not my place to say I am saved, you are lost, or you are saved, I am lost, but it is my place to say I believe in an absolutely just God. And this just God has taught me now between you and I, I don't know which one of us has truly surrendered their face to Allah and is truly does what is beautiful and what is righteous. Who knows what is in a person's heart? Who amongst us can, can, can unseat God of God's throne and say it is my judgment and not you and, and not God's? This is God's judgment. God knows what is inside of us. God knows who's better, who's purer, who's cleaner. God knows who truly does good and who pretends to do good. And as I said, if only people understood this because it is impossible only a God would reveal this book under the circumstances that Muslims confronted. Look, وَقَالَتِ الْيَهُودُ لَيْسَتِ النَّصَارَ عَلَى شَيْءٍ وَقَالَتِ النَّصَارَ لَيْسَتِ الْيَهُودُ عَلَى شَيْءٍ وَهُمْ يَتْلُونَ الْكِتَابِ كَذَلِكَ قَالَ الَّذِينَ لَا يَعْلَمُونَ مِثْلَ قَوْلِهِمْ فَاللَّهُ يَحْكُمُ بَيْنَهُمْ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ فِيمَا كَانُوا فِيهِ يَخْتَلِفُونَ so Jews say Christians don't know what they're talking about. Christians say Jews don't know what they're talking about. Now, كَذَلِكَ قَالَ الَّذِينَ لَا يَعْلَمُونَ مِثْلَ قَوْلِهِمْ Similarly, people who don't know, people who put it, people who are on the wrong path would say what they're saying. It's like saying, 
anyone who doesn't know what they're talking about would act this way. What you can say is that God will judge between all in the hereafter. So, when it comes to dealing with the hereafter, you can, when, this, you know, you, you get, uh, how do I put it? What comes with dealing with the hereafter to play the salvation game as if you own it is something completely outside of, and, and when, imagine that for Muslims at the time, and you come and tell Jews and Christians, instead of telling them, Oh, you are clearly both of you are just completely wrong and we alone are right you come with a nuanced message say well you know you're wrong because you are concealing the truth and you know that Allah said that there is another prophet and this prophet is was known as the praiseworthy who's coming but it is your sages it is your scholars because the common person didn't have access to the Bible who know this to be the truth and who are concealing it as to everyone else it, it, those who turn their face to God and do good you don't have to worry because this is just God and as to all the disagreements between you that you argue about God is going to judge between you in the hereafter so it is not up to you to argue about what's going to that type of nuanced layered moral message is is not what you would expect at all from some type of purely uh, human-driven ideological project. Because that's not how human ideologues talk. Especially if they want to build a nation and a civilization. Um, okay. We've talked about 114... Okay. Um, I I can't leave or skip over. Look at um, okay. One fifteen. So, and God, المغرب, and God, and God is the east and west, and whoever you and wherever you turn, there is. Uh, the Arabic is Muhammad Asad responds it uh, or translates it as, "There is God's countenance. Behold, God is infinite, and all knowing." 
And yet, some people assert God has taken unto God's self a son. Limitless is God in God's glory. Nay, but God is all that is in the heavens and on earth, and all things devoutly obey God's will. The originator is God of the heavens and earth, and when God wills a thing to be, God says unto it, Be, and it is. وَلِلَّهِ الْمَشْرِقُ وَالْمَغْرِبِ فَإِنَّمَا تُوَلُّوا فَثَمَّ وَجْهُ اللَّهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ وَاسُعٌ عَلِيمٌ وكذلك وقالوا اتخذ الله ولد سبحانه بل له ما في السماوات والأرض كل له قانتون بديع السماوات والأرض وإذا قضى أمرا فإنما يقول له كن فيكون so, Right after the revelation about the mutual accusations between Jews and Christians and transgressing upon the bounds of God by attempting to usurp the issue of salvation, and then right after, Allah notes that places of worship are sacrosanct. And as we said before, that this is um, one fourteen, that all places of worship are sacrosanct. And that's why in Islamic law, you, you are not allowed to attack a church or a synagogue or, or close a church or a synagogue down, which again, for that time, was radical. I mean, it was just... And then comes that reminder, and we often ignore this because we, we think that this is talking about the change in Qibla. But this is coming and talking about where God is before the revelation about Qibla. And it tells us that the East and West belong to God. And wherever you turn, there is God's face. So the divine is all around you. And this is, by the way, as underscored in, in several other occasions, as we'll see in Surah Al-Baqarah, that wherever you turn is your Lord. Now, pause here. And this is right before it still, it, it, it underscores the absurdity of the idea that God has a son or that God... It, it, whether son meaning God gave birth to the son or that that deity is a partner to God in any way. But the import is quite clear. That sacrosanct are places of worship. But where is God? 
in old religiosity an immense part of, and this was, by the way, in all religions, it, it, um, the sacred existed exclusively in sacred spaces. This is why, for instance, in primitive, in primitive religions, you sacrificed, including human beings sometimes, but you sacrificed things within a sacred space in order to appease a sacred existence within the space. Churches, in order to control religiosity, sacred space is where, and, and the one, one of the ways, for instance, that the Protestant Revolution broke out is to, for people to have started claiming that they experienced Jesus outside the church and outside the auspices of the Catholic Church. Same thing in Judaism. After the diaspora, the, the original Judaism is that God is in the temple. But after the diaspora, the rabbis became the uh, the um, uh, interceders so that God exists or divinity or sacredness exists through rabbis creating a space in the temple in temples for worship absent that are symbolically representative of the original temple that has been destroyed. When the Islamic message comes, remember the Prophet, when the Prophet says that the entire earth has been made a mosque, right? And the discourse of Islam was not just to take revelation outside of the control of a clerical class, but to also take the idea of sacred space outside of the control of a clerical class. That, again, was a very significant part of the Islamic revolution. But in addition to that, we often ignore that when Allah comes and says that to Allah is the East and West and at the context in which Allah is, is and, and right even before Allah says, so how can you say something as absurd as a God has a son? Is that to remind Muslims themselves not to fall in the error of thinking that they exclusively control sacred space. Why are synagogues and churches inviolable? You, it, it, why is it, it that you 
well, if you're thinking, well, because that's sacred space. Well, the Quran comes and tells you, well, but sacred space could be everywhere. And you don't control access to, as the Quran puts it, the Lord's face. A very humbling ideology. This is an ideology not filling you with um, tyrannical arrogance about being the possessors of exclusive access to the Lord. Quite the opposite. Okay. And And Badiu Samawati al Arm Fa Ida Koda Amran Fa in Nama Yakulu Lahu Kunfayakun Badiya the 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 majesty of the heavens and the earth who ultimately controls is the the the, the ownership of of all space belongs to this God. Again, if you are tempted to think that a class, a clergy, an elite can claim that they alone have access to sacred space or access to the access to the sacred these verses like so much of the Quran disabuse you of these notions and that's why right this comes right before Before verse 118, where Allah says there are, there are those ignorant people who say that we can only experience the divine if Allah speaks to us. Let's see how this translated. And, and only those who are devoid of knowledge say, why does God not speak unto us, nor is a miraculous sign shown to us? Even thus, like unto what they say, spoke those who lived before their time. Their hearts are alike. Indeed, we have made all the signs manifest unto people who are endowed with inner certainty. So the language, the, the elaborate language can easily um, 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 obfuscate the clarity of the message itself. So those who don't know say, why doesn't God speak to us? Who do you think 
would be the people who are saying, why doesn't God speak to us? Well, you ask yourself, who was it that made the claim that God does speak to them? Well, the people who made these claims were not the laity. It was always the clergy, those people who are in temples, in churches, in sacred spaces, who claimed that God communicated with them beyond a revealed text. So they would say, we are receiving, subhanAllah, you know, so much corruption of our power. It's because of people who claim that God somehow communicates with them beyond the revealed text. Look at the, 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 the legacy of so many despots, but even beyond despots, but in historical terms, some of the major corruptions of clergy was that claim that we have access to the Lord. And when they're coming in and saying, well, wait, so other than this Quran that you're coming here and, and, and giving us, God doesn't speak to any of you? No, God doesn't speak to any of us. Well, we in our churches, in our temples, God speaks to us. And the Quran comes and says, that's not the case. It's a complete, again, as I keep saying, the paradigm shift. And says those who fall for this trick, because some of the people in Medina who refuse to convert, will say, wait, but these clergy, these priests, these rabbis, are in communication with God on a nightly basis. You Muslims, th that sounds really cool and mysterious and exclusive and so on. But you Muslims basically come and saying, you know, Qul Allahu Ahad, well, everyone is reciting Qul Allahu Ahad. What's so exclusive about that? Where is the cool factor? Well, there is no cool factor. D this is just the way it is. This new egalitarian framework for things. And the Quran comes and says, well, th this is precisely the mistake. This is precisely the problem that so many people fall into. And the, the corrupting process of claiming that you are communicating with God beyond revelation, and then, which as we know from human experience, is so often used for entirely corrupt purposes that have nothing to do with revelation. Okay. And notice again 120. 
Because this is a very famous verse, by the way. لَن تَرْضَ عَنْكَ الْيَهُودُ وَلَا النَّصَارَ حَتَّى تَتَّبِعَ مِلَّتَهُمْ قُلْ إِنَّ هُدَى اللَّهِ هُوَ الْهُدَى وَإِنْ اتَّبَعْتَ أَهْوَاءَهُمْ بَعْدَ الَّذِي جَاءَكَ مِنَ الْعِلْمِ مَا لَكَ مِنَ اللَّهِ مِنْ وَلِيُّ وَلَا نَصِيرٌ But, and this was for Muslims at the time and beyond. that one of the biggest challenges now this is at different levels so at one level is understand and this is the historical level to understand what you are coming with is nothing short of a revolution it's a revolution that will upset the order of things for Christians and Jews. It completely upsets the order of things. And indeed, Islam forced Judaism to change. It was because of Islam that Maimonides was born. The, ega the great egalitarian philosopher in Judaism. And because of Islam, that Martin Luther was born, the great egalitarian philosopher in Christian theology, among other things. Islam changed the face of sacred space. And so, As the Islamic revelation comes, it tells these early Muslims what is obvious, but should be obvious. And that is, because you're a revolution, you are going to change the language of the age. You are going to change the epistemology, the system of knowledge that exists for people. So they are not going to be happy with you. You're challenging everything. You're challenging their privileges. You're challenging their, their system of knowledge. You're challenging the, the way they relate to the sacred. You're challenging the, the way that... And they're not going to be happy with you unless you abandon the Islamic revelation and what it comes with. But beyond the historical context when you have a a religion like islam that is rational egalitarian moral that one of the biggest challenges is how do I so one of the biggest challenges that confronts open-minded people is that you are open-minded but because you're open-minded and tolerant 
you start gravitating towards appeasement. So open-mindedness becomes an unhealthy habit where because when you're open-minded you become a, a, a accustomed to not wanting to upset people not wanting to disappoint people not wanting to offend people one of the real dangers is that because of these inclinations is that then that open-mindedness transforms into appeasement of the other at the expense of the integrity of the self. So understand bluntly that there is the challenge is to remain you're open-minded because you are true to who you are. It doesn't mean that you dilute who you are, you obscure who you are, so you melt into the other. It's a huge difference between saying, God is just, God might accept from you because God knows what is in your heart and saying, well, I'm not going to judge anything because God judges. That doesn't follow. There's a huge world of difference. You're conceding that God is the ultimate judge, but that doesn't get you off the hook for making your best efforts at moral judgment. So, beyond the historical context, the Quran comes and says, just note that you Muslims have not been given the theology of a chosen people. You Muslims have not been given the theology of a th salvation through Christ. the end of it. You Muslims have given been given something far more nuanced than that. So, within the parameters of your systems of belief, you have a more challenging dynamic. And that challenging dynamic, you must understand that you cannot lose yourself into the other under the false belief that this way you are being tolerant and open-minded. So, notice, right after this, الَّذِينَ آتَيْنَاهُمُ الْكِتَابِ يَتْلُونَهُ حَقَّةً لَا وَتِهِ أُولَئِكَ يُؤْمِنُونَ بِهِ 
ومن يكفر به فأولئك هم الخاسرون يا بني إسرائيل اذكروا نعمتي التي أنعمت عليكم وأني فضلتكم على العالمين So 121 says told you Surah Al-Baqarah is like an ocean it's really an ocean of knowledge those unto whom we have vouchsafed the divine writ and who follow it as it ought to be followed it is they who truly believe in it whereas all those all who choose to deny its truth it is they they who are the losers الذين اتيناهم الكتاب يتلونه حق تلاوته the translation of Muhammad Asad, I'm not sure that I agree with. Those who we've given them the book, and those who read it as it should be read, yu'minuna bihi. Now, On the one hand, this applies as the ayah right after makes uh, clear to the Israelites is that it is saying to them that those who truly read the book and without corrupting or without ignoring the message of the book, which from the Quranic perspective clearly under identifies a coming Messiah, and as we said, who is the brother of Isaac, or from the, the descendants of the brother of Isaac. And Isaac, of, of course, himself was before Judaism, so Isaac himself was not um, Jewish in that sense. But anyway... But the, the brethren from that, they know the truth. And so then after that, when Allah reminds Israelites and he says, remember that I have given you a great privilege that I have chosen you to be the bearers of the message of monotheism and that in that is a great honor, and so on. So that's the, the meaning in the historical context. But beyond that, as Muhammad Abdu notes, that Tilawat al-Kitab, there are many who recite the book and they recite it, as Muhammad Abdu puts it, and I like that, like, as the Quran describes it elsewhere, like a donkey carrying books. They recite it, but comprehend little of it, do not reflect upon it, like Muslims who finish the Quran every Ramadan, 
But from one Ramadan to another, their knowledge of the Quran doesn't increase at all. Their moral ability and moral development from one Ramadan to another doesn't increase at all. In fact, spending time with the Quran doesn't produce any material change in their moral development. Haqqatilawatihi that in this is a, a timeless refrain from Allah that if you recite the book, not all recitation is equal. And Muhammad Abdu notes, and when you think that, you know, Muhammad Abdu's, uh, that tafsir was written in the late 1800s, uh, it's, you know, so already now, 100 years have, well over 100 years have passed. Um, uh, it's really sad because, it, uh, you know, 100 years and we didn't progress at all. That remember that the Prophet ﷺ says that there are many who recite the Quran لا يجاوز تراقيهم that there are people who recite the Quran and it really doesn't go beyond their vocal cords. So Muhammad Abdu comments that there are so many people who think that reciting Quran is about getting the right pronunciation the right rules of tajweed, the right rules of tartil, the right rules of qira'a, and that Muslims admire and celebrate a person who recites the Qur'an with the correct rules of recitation far more than they celebrate someone who explains the Qur'an or who understands the Qur'an, or who comprehends the Qur'an. And of course, you know, you think and say, wow, he wrote this well over a hundred years ago, and if anything, we've gotten worse. Because at least in Muhammad Abdul's age, people still respected Muhammad Abdul or Rashid Rida as, you know, someone as Qur'anic commentators, but we are in an age where, you know, yeah, it, it just, um, it, it, it's, I think it's self-evident. I, mean, I shouldn't, uh, I, I don't want to, okay. What time is it? Oh, okay. Let, let's stop here for tonight. It's 9.30. Um, so we are at, inshallah, 1.23. Um, we're getting there. I don't know when we'll be finished, but we're getting there. Okay. Um, you want to do the honors? Okay, alhamdulillah. As-salamu alaykum. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Um... I think I figured out that, like, I always say that there's that visceral moment where it's just like, whoosh, I think it's like, you, you know, at the beginning of the halakha, you're floating at the top of the ocean, and then you start 
drifting deeper and deeper until you feel like you're completely submerged and it's just like it's so great like the feeling of drowning and knowledge but it's <laughs> the same time it's like whew, oh my god um I, and now I've started to try and take notes to, because I feel like I should say something different than other than thank you so much. We're so grateful. <laughs> this is amazing. I don't know what to say, blah, blah, blah. But um, yeah, no, this is, I, I think just to underscore the gems that I, I feel like we got. And this is just a few things that I started to take notes about. But just the beauty of this message being about the common person and the revolution, like every time you point out this is the revolution of the Islamic message at that time. And like, I think, you know, I mean, I was always a horrible student of history, but this like understanding the historical context um, for, for all the verses that we are so familiar with, um, really when you understand then the significance of what the Quran is saying and what, you know, the ayah that you've, the verses you've heard so many times and you go, oh my God, okay, now I understand why it was a revolution. Um, it, it's it's just so liberating. I mean, it's so intellectually liberating. Um, and I think um, the idea of like having open access to the text, um, taking the control out of the hands of the clergy, um, you know, not being able, not having control of sacred space or denying control of sacred space by the clergy, but at the same time being told you are not allowed to control sacred space um, saying, okay, now you need to rely on your intellect, which a priori has been always, you know, the means before there was any revelation. Um, and now we're done with miracles. We're done with mythology. You are on your own to think through these things. Um, and that you have to, you know, you're going to be judged through your acts of justice, your choice, um, you know, only God knows what's in your heart, so no one has a right to tell you whether you're going to make it to heaven or not. Um, and, you know, like, again, the whole idea of the chosen people, you're chosen because of who you are individually and what you do. And then even, like, the point about the abrogation verse, once again, like, the, you know, you talked about it in, in a previous halakha, but today when you went in and explained that the abrogation is not about Quranic verse abrogating another Quranic verse, but, you know, abrogating... The message to the Israelites. I just all of it when it makes sense. You just it's just like your heart just sings. It's just happiness and freedom and liberation. And I can't you know describe. Just I mean it makes it's like just makes the world make a little bit more sense. But it, for us as Muslims understanding the Quran, it just underscores then why we should care about the Quran. Why it's such the source of liberation and knowledge and and confidence. Um, and especially in the age of Islamophobia when people are constantly ashamed to say they're Muslim and you start learning these things and it starts making you feel like, you know what, there's no shame. This is actually a source of power, enlightenment, and freedom. Um, you know, these things are priceless. I don't know how you can um, put any kind of, of, you know, tag on it. Um, so I'm just, I'm so grateful. and. Oh my God, can't wait for more. <laughs> so, inshallah, thank you so, so much. Happy birthday to you, but we got the gift. <laughs> so, um, thank you, everybody. You guys have a wonderful rest of the weekend. Thank you, guys, everyone. I mean, I know people on Interactive Group are, you know, and people who watch this later and not with us live. I know so many of you guys are with us. Your hearts are with us. 
you're supporting us, you know, whether it's through prayer, whether it's through donation, um, telling your friends, it means so much. And I feel like every single halakha, we just feel more and more the importance of this. And, um, and so just, uh, you know, I become much more emboldened in my ability to talk about this, you know, how, how important this is for, for Muslims. And I hope that all of you feel that way and that you feel part of this community. Um, inshallah, you know, we, this is, this is the most important project on this planet. I truly believe that if you're a Muslim and yeah, I mean, you know, it's like, what else do you want to be a part of? And, um, you know, maybe I would have been ashamed to say that before and maybe people would have been like, eh, she's just his wife, you know, she has to say that. No, I really believe it. I really believe that there is nothing else that is more important than helping people see the the centrality of the Quran and making people love it and recognize its its relevance to our life and that this is the way for the future. And um, you know, I'm I'm so I feel so blessed to be part of this. And so um, I hope everyone else feels that way too and will spread the word. So thank you so much, you guys. Um, have a wonderful rest of the weekend and inshallah we will see you on Wednesday. Assalamu alaikum. <laughs> Bye.